0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. James Renahan. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Haggai? Haggai chapter 2, Now I'll read in your hearing verses 10 through 19. Haggai 2, 10 through 19. Hear the word of God. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. May God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word. Let's pray together. O Lord, thank you for giving us this revelation. Would you help us this morning to think through it and teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Haggai, of course, was a post-exilic prophet. His brief book is divided up into four words of prophecy. Chapter 1 is one long word, and then there are three different prophecies that we find in chapter 2. The people had returned from exile, and they had one primary purpose, which was to rebuild the temple of God. And they had started well, but quickly they ceased their work on building the temple. There were opponents, there was discouragement, and 14 years had passed. They had spent time building their own homes, they had sought to eke out a living, but they had neglected those, uh, the temple for those 14 years and the Lord sent blight and trouble to them. And Haggai comes to call them to consider their ways, to repent, and they do. And they turn to building the temple. Now in this section, in this third of the prophecies of Haggai, he addresses the question, what is the nature of true religion? He delivered these words exactly three months after the recommencement of the work on the temple. Back at the end of chapter 1, we read that it was on the 24th day of, of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king, that they began the work. Now, exactly three months later, the prophet comes to them and speaks to them about a problem that was perennially present among them and which even to this day permeates religious culture, and that is, what is the nature of true religion? Now, in the first case, the Lord discourses with the priests, and he brings them to the law. The law was the standard for judgment, and the questions that the prophet brings to the priests were not to seek their opinions, but rather to turn them or turn their attention to the only authoritative standard for sanctification. That's what this is about. So the Lord seeks to ask them questions about the law, in order to bring them to a place of proper self-evaluation based on the law, he doesn't just confront their failure at this moment, but he leads it to them by means or he leads them to it by means of the law. And that's why it's a standard. The priests needed to think through these things. Now notice the questions that are brought to them. First, there's a positive question. Is it possible for a holy thing to transfer its holiness? To an unholy thing. If you have something that's set apart, that's consecrated, and it touches something that is not consecrated, something that is defiled, something that is unholy, can it, by that tactile contact, transfer its holiness? And the correct answer, which is given by the priest, is no, it cannot. No, there is no means by which a holy thing is able to transfer its holiness to an unholy thing. This is then followed by a second question, The Lord asks them, Can a defiled or unclean thing transfer its defilement? Can something that is unclean by tactile contact thus transfer its defilement? And the answer is yes, it can. If something is unclean and it touches something that is clean, the thing that is clean becomes unclean by that contact. And that's correct, it's always correct under the law. Of course, it's true under the gospel as well. Think about the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, participation in the supper for the Corinthians did not automatically sanctify them, but actually their actions defiled their observance of the supper in that case. You see, it's one drop of poison may defile a pitcher of water, yet many drops of water cannot undo the ill effects of one drop of poison. T.V. Moore, in his commentary on the book of Haggai, phrases it this way. The principle is that a holy ordinance or form cannot hallow an unsanctified person or thing by any inherent or opus operatum efficacy of its own. There is no automatic transfer via outward forms of holiness or of grace. We cannot trust in ritual or form or sacrament, or association with things holy to make us or our actions acceptable to God. We can't do things, nor can our association with holy things make us acceptable to God. Here the Lord, through the prophet, was using the law to make the people see their sins. And this helps them in verse 14 to understand what has happened. Look again there. After these questions, Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. It seems that Israel had trusted in outward forms. After they returned from exile, they settled into observing all of the forms of the law. In fact, it's interesting if we had looked back at the uh, the previous prophecy, which uh, we, we notice in chapter 2, verse 1, on the seventh, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, that's actually the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were observing the rituals, the sacrifices, the festivals, all of these things. And they seemed to have thought that because they observed them, these would satisfy God, as if he were content with ritual, even ritual that he himself had commanded. They did these things, but they were not satisfying God's demands. You see, their view was completely wrong. It was incorrect. Their actions in the failure to rebuild the temple, to do the first thing that they were called to do upon their return, proved that they did not understand the most basic principle of true religion, and that is that we must love the Lord with all our heart and soul, and mind or all of our outward acts even our obedience to acts that he commands are empty and worthless we can do the right thing but we can do the right thing in the wrong way and for 14 years the works of the hands of these returning from exile their offerings were unclean and they were worthless now we we might ask the question Would they have sinned more by neglecting these things? And the answer is, of course they would have. Of course, it would have been worse had they not done them. But the lack of genuine faith undoes all outward acts. There is and there must be a priority. And in this case, the Lord is calling Haggai or the people through Haggai to recognize that he looks on the heart and not on the outward action. Now, notice what the Lord does. After he makes this pronouncement and tells the people that all of their work has been unclean, the Lord provokes their thoughts. This is one of the the linguistic connections between the first uh, prophecy of Haggai and the third. It's, It's really interesting how the book is structured. One and three go together and two and four go together. There are direct linguistic and thematic ties between the two. The Lord comes to them and calls upon them to consider their ways. That's language that's picked up from the first prophecy. Consider your ways. And two times he tells them to consider. In the first case, he wants them to look backwards. Think about what has happened in the past. When you first returned and you came to, uh, um, or before you began to rebuild the temple of the Lord, what was your experience? Think back to the way that your life was structured. How did you fare? So he's using uh, an experiential or an exemplary means, something that they themselves had known, something that they had seen to make them think about what happened. And it's very colorful, isn't it? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, here's this man who had harvested the grain from his land and put it in a heap and it made 20 measures. He did it himself and it came back to those 20 measures, what was there? There were only 10. And when you came to the wine vat, and you know that you put in the wine vat 50 measures, and you came to draw it out, what was there? There were only 20. 60% of it was gone. Where was it? What was your experience? Remember what happened to you. Think through this. Year after year after year. You know, In an agricultural society, one harvest or one bad harvest is difficult. And you say, well, it's maybe you look at it and you say it's because of the weather, it's because of circumstances. But for these people, there was one bad harvest, and then there were two bad harvests, and then there were three, and then there were four, and then there was five. After five or six or seven, you'd begin thinking, wouldn't you? But there were 14 of them. Fourteen years in which, in this land that was flowing with milk and honey, in this land where God promised blessings upon his people, all they did was face difficulty and trouble. And those promised blessings did not come upon them. Don't you think that you'd stop and reason about this for a moment? This, this is not just um, farmers in the American Midwest facing a drought. This is God's people returning after exile to the Holy Land. And the blessings that are promised are not coming to them. They ought to have asked the question, why is this? Why does everything seem to be bad? Well, the answer is provided in verse 17. The Lord says he was against them. Here they are for all of those years. The Lord calls them to consider, to think back. And he says, this is the reason I struck you and all the products of your toil, with blight, and with mildew, and with hail. The first year, maybe you explained it by other circumstances, but I did that. And the second year, I did that. And the third year, I did that. And the fourth year, I did that for 14 years. And the Lord says, yet you did not turn to me. In all of this, in all of these circumstances, here you are back in the land of promise, and yet in the land of promise, everything is going badly. Don't you realize that I'm the one who made the promises, that I'm the one who told you that this land would flow with milk and honey, and you don't, get, you don't receive it? Don't you realize that I must have something to do with this? Think back to the past. Look backwards and contemplate. But don't stop there. Look forward as well. In verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 gives us another one of these dates. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. The 24th day of the ninth month is in midwinter. It's in December, mid-December. This is the time when you're not harvesting nor are you growing, but rather the seed already should have been in the barn. Notice the question of verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Well, the answer is, uh, it should be, but it wasn't. There was no seed in the barn. They had empty barns, empty grain bins, whatever it was that they used to store the produce from the year, those are empty. And it's mid-December, and it's bleak. Because now you won't have a harvest for many more months. What will you do? The Lord says, Is the seed yet in the barn? And then he uses the language of promise. Vine, fig tree, pomegranate, olive tree. Language that comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. The things that God promised. Consider, think about this. Is the seed in the barn? No, the barn is empty. But the Lord says, from this day on, I will bless you. Here it is in midwinter. In the middle of December. From this day on, I will bless you. A time when you can't expect the crop to be harvested, when you don't expect to go out into the fields and find something that is growing. The Lord says, life has been hard, but life will be good. You wonder, were they thinking about the future based upon the past? I think if it were me, after 14 years, I kind of would expect the same thing to happen again. But this is a great word of comfort. Because the Lord comes to his people and he blesses his people with this promise. I will be with you. From this day on, I will bless you. Now, we have to ask the question then, well, what makes the difference? There are two things that make the difference in this circumstance. The first of them is that the Lord has acted see, in one sense, I wish that we could have read through the entire prophecy of Haggai. Because in chapter 1, this first word that comes from the prophet, it is the Lord who sends the prophet to them with this word after 14 years to call them to repentance. In verse 13 of chapter 1, it is the Lord who comes to them and calls them to act. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all of the rest of the remnant of the people. First and foremost, the Lord comes to them, and he stirs them up, and he promises that he will be with them. This is, of course, the beginning, always. And we must never forget about it. This is the grace of God in action. At this point, he doesn't leave his people to themselves, but he comes to them and he calls them by the prophet and he stirs them up. And then as a result of what the Lord does first, the people respond. This is the other half. They obey the voice of the Lord, we're told in verse 12 of chapter 1. They feared the Lord, Old Testament language for true religion. And they come and they work. You know, there's another date in uh, chapter one. We've already noticed it, but it's the 24th day of the sixth month when they come and they work, when they begin the rebuilding of the temple. You know when the sixth month is? It's mid-September, and mid-September is the time of harvest. That's the time that you go out into the fields And you bring in the crop. You bring in the fruit of all of the labor that you've put in for the last year. And you put it into the barn and store it. There's a really important connection between this sixth month in mid-September, where normally everybody's going out into the field to pick the crops. And instead of doing that, knowing that there's been 14 lean years, instead of going out to find the grain, what do they do? They go to the temple. They begin to rebuild the temple. They put God's work first, even before the necessary work of filling the harvest. And then we read in the prophecy that three months later, the Lord comes to them and he asks them this question, is is there any seed in the barn? And of course the answer is no. And now the seed that has been out in the field, the fruit of the crops has probably withered and died over that three-month span. And yet now the Lord comes to them and he says, I will bless you. This is the principle throughout the scripture. God moves, men act, and the sovereignty of grace at work in his people is demonstrated in this principle. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And when he loves us, he blesses us as we pursue him, as we follow after him. Israel was intended at this point, or the, the lesson that they were taught, is that they must make the building of the house of God the first priority. And when that is the first priority, then the Lord comes and he blesses. Of course, for us, it's not literal and it's physical, but it's spiritual. And this must be the first priority in our own lives, by putting the things of the church of God first, and then trusting in the Lord to help us and to bless us. There are many other things that we could draw out of this, the danger of ritualism, which was the danger of the Israelites. We could talk about the fact that pollution is easier to receive than holiness is to give. But thanks be to God that he has given to us a holiness that is permanent and undefiled that comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is all over the book of Haggai. The the earlier Prophecy, the 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 second of them that's in chapter two, speaks about the glory of the temple that will come. Why was it glorious later? Well, not because of its beauty and its building, but because Jesus came there, and Jesus gave it a beauty that could not be known by anyone else. the the In in Acts chapter fifteen, we read about purification that comes to the heart through faith, through Jesus Christ. You see, the writer of the book of Haggai, this prophet, ultimately is pointing his people and us to Jesus and saying that we find all of our purification, all of our beauty in him, and we are to trust in him and devote ourselves to him and then know that he will watch over and guide, govern, and protect us. This is the nature of true religion. As a result of God's grace... We receive salvation, and then because of that, we respond in loving obedience to the commands of God. May God help us to know this lesson. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder to us. Bless your word as we meditate on it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.